Hey, uh, today is a very exciting day for me because we are beginning a brand new series in the life of Abraham, and I've been working on this for the last, uh, really, a couple months, and I've been thinking and praying over this series, and then uh, just to talk together about what it looks like to be a person of faith and to walk with God by faith. So I'm really excited to jump into this series, and so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. And let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. God, we have walked in here today from so many different spaces and places in life. Some of us are filled with gratitude and joy for your many gifts that we were able to experience even over this weekend. Some of us came in with burdens and pain on our heart. Some of us can't even believe we're sitting in church today, God, but we just pray that wherever we're at, that you might speak, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that you might address us and change us. For we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. So there's a great scene in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass where Alice is in a conversation with the queen, and they're talking about unbelievable things, and the queen says this, now I'll give you something to believe. I'm just 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen in a pitying tone? Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. Why, when I was your age, I always did it for a half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. In the theatrical version with the brilliantly cast Johnny Depp as Hatter, There's a scene toward the end where Alice is going into battle with the Jabberwocky and the very power, the strength she draws upon in order to gain a victory over the Jabberwocky is her ability, her uncanny ability to believe impossible things. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor, but I have people say to me at different times uh, over the last several years, hey, I wish I had your faith. And maybe you've heard something like that as well when people are interacting with you and they learn that you're a church-going person or whatever. But, you know, I always wonder, what do you mean by that? And I think sometimes people are saying it as a word of respect, as in, look, I really respect your faith, that, that you're committed. Uh, sometimes I think people are saying, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you can be so optimistic and hopeful in the face of so much darkness in the world. I can't. I'm just too much of a realist. But I think sometimes what people are saying when they make that comment is, I just can't believe impossible things like you do. 
But you know, I think that that reflects at least two massive misunderstandings about the Christian faith and what it means to be a person of faith. Uh, First, it, it reflects the misunderstanding that all people at some level or another are people of faith and that everyone has a, has a web of beliefs about ultimate reality that are unproven and that are unprovable and yet are coherent. They kind of hold together in their mind. And so everybody at one level or another, even the most ardent person of science, is also a person of faith. But I think it also reflects a misunderstanding about what we mean when we even talk about Christian faith. You see, the the great thinkers in the church tradition have never believed that Christianity is simply about believing the impossible, and that growth in faith means that you have kind of like generated the ability to believe in an optimistic or hopeful way impossible things. You know, all of the greatest thinkers that the church has produced from Africa or Asia or Latin America or Europe or whatever, all of the greatest thinkers have always asserted what, Christian, what, what C.S. Lewis asserted, which is that he, he said once, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. In other words, Christianity has come for them to make intellectual and existential sense of the reality we inhabit. And so Christian faith is not about believing the impossible, but then that raises a question. What does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to walk in a journey of faith or to grow in faith? And what if we doubt? What if we struggle to believe sometimes the things that we sing about or preach about or read about in church or in the Bible? What do we do about our faith? And what does it mean to grow in faith and to walk with God by faith? And it's those questions that we're going to be exploring beginning today and over the next several weeks as we look together at the great paradigm, the great father of faith, Abraham. You know, it's fascinating. uh, The three great monotheistic religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, they all count Abraham as the father of faith. In other words, if you want to know what it means to be a person of faith, you have to look at Abraham. And I love Abraham as an example because Abraham is not just a father of faith. In many ways, Abraham was also a father of doubt because he struggled to believe. And we're going to enter into some of those struggles, some of his own wrestling with doubt. But we want to begin today by looking at the very beginning of the story of Abraham. And I want you to see in Abraham, in this very opening passage, what is the very essence of faith? In other words, what is at the heart? What is at the core what, is it, what, it, what does it really mean to be a person of faith? We see its very essence in this story, and it picks up in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, stop there. So we are entering into what is the most important structural break in the book of Genesis. In fact, Uh, Walter Brueggemann, a great scholar of the Old Testament, says that this break in between chapter 11 and chapter 12 is the most significant break, not just in the book of Genesis, but in the entire Bible. Because here, there is a great divide, a great break between two histories. 
On the one hand is the history of the cosmos and the creation of all things. And on the other hand, what follows chapter 12 is the history of the covenant promise that God makes to Abraham. You know, in the first uh, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we get the history of all things. We have the creation of the heavens and the earth and the story of the human race and the growth of the human race and the fall of the human race and to sin and darkness and brokenness. And we, we see glimpses of the violence that's capable in the heart of human beings as Cain kills his brother Abel. We see how this sinful condition spreads to all humanity and ultimately evokes God's judgment in the flood. We see human arrogance and pretense and aspirations to make a great name for themselves in the Tower of Babel and in the dispersion of the nations throughout the, the earth. And so the first 11 chapters deal with all people and all places and really all things that God, who is the creator of everything, brought into being. But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, a new story, a new history begins. And here, the focus narrows. And it, and it goes from the, the cosmos all the way down to a genealogy of three families in chapter 11, three large family groups, nation lines. And then it goes down focusing into one nation, uh, Shem. And then it goes into one tribe and one family from that nation. And then all the way down to one couple, just one couple on the entire face of the planet, Abram and his wife, Sarah. And it's to this couple that God comes and he makes a promise and the rest of the Bible is about the unfolding of that promise. In fact, going all the way into the New Testament, you know, the very first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew, and the very first verse in that book is this. It says, now the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew and all of the writers in the New Testament want to see it show us how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this great promise that God makes to Abraham. And so do you see here is the most important structural break in the entire Bible. You know, here is the break from the, the story of humanity in sin to the story of the covenant and the promise of redemption and healing for all that humanity brought into the world through sin. And it begins where? It begins with a promise. The Lord said to Abram, go. Now stop there. <laughs> Who does God make a promise to? And why does he make a promise to this guy? He makes a problem, promise to Abram. Now, uh, here his name is Abram. Uh, later, it'll be changed to Abraham. Don't let that confuse you. Abram simply means father. Uh, Abraham means father of many. And so Abram means daddy, and Abraham, it means big daddy. You know, you can kind of like wrap your mind around that. But God comes to him with this stunning promise. Now, why of all of the peoples of the earth does he choose Abram? We don't know. There's nothing particularly God-fearing about Abram. As far as we know, Abram was an idolater just like everybody else in the world at that time were idolaters, worshiping many gods. He came from the land of Ur. Ur was the home of the moon god. And it's likely that Abram, like everyone else in Ur, worshiped the moon god. So he wasn't particularly, uh, you know, drawn toward the one true and living god. 
So why did God choose him? And what's even more ironic is the only thing we've learned about Abram to this point is given to us in the genealogy, and it's just a little notation. And the one thing we know about Abram is that he was married to a woman whose name was Sarah, and that Sarah was barren. And it's almost as if all of human history that had been told from Genesis 1 all, to, all the way to chapter 11 is narrowing its focus down. There's the spread of sin and the curse and darkness, and it, and it narrows its focus all the way to this one couple who was barren, who, who have no future. In the ancient world, barrenness was a tragedy, even it is, as it is today, but it's even more a tragedy in the ancient world because your children were your future. Your children were your social security and your retirement. Uh, your children is who carried on your name, and so to not be able to have children was, was darkness and tragedy. It meant no hope and no future. And so all of human history settles in on this one couple, idolaters like everyone else, who have no hope and no future, Abram, who's old and his wife is barren, and to this couple, God comes unexpected, uninvited, unannounced, and he makes a promise. By his sheer grace, he breaks in. In his own sovereign freedom, God breaks in and he makes a promise. He says, go to the land, or go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. In response to this call, Abram goes and he follows and he trusts in the promise. And listen, here it is. Here is the very essence of faith. Here is at its heart what it means to be a person of faith. The very essence of faith is trust in the promise of God. This is what it means to be a person of faith. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, if you have faith, you will do. Faith manifests itself in a lot of ways. It manifests itself in works of justice and mercy and care for the poor. There's a lot of ways we can cultivate faith, and there are practices of the faith. You can go to church, and you can read your Bible, and you can pray, but listen, giving to the poor and doing good works of justice and mercy and reading your Bible and praying, that's not faith in its essence. Faith in its essence is trust in the promise of God. Faith is trust in the promise of God. But that raises a question, what is the promise of God? And here's where churches go real off all the time, is we load, we, we put into God's mouth all kinds of promises that God, in fact, didn't make. We act as if faith in God is trust that God is going to make my life successful and go well. There's even a prosperity gospel in the world today that says, basically, if you can name it and you can claim it, God will bring it to you. And he'll make you rich and powerful and famous and all of this stuff. That's not the promise of God that he gives to us. The promise of God is identified here in this text. And as I said, the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of this promise. If you're going to understand what it means to be a person of faith, you have to be able to wrap your mind around and get this promise that God made to Abram. And you've got to, you've got to cultivate trust and faith in this promise that God made to Abram. So what is the promise? 
Well, there's three aspects. There's three uh, constitutive uh, elements to the promise, if you will. And the first aspect of the promise, the first thing God promises to Abram is land. Notice what it says back in the text again, verse 1. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abram hears this call, he gets up, and he goes to the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, look at what it says in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice first and foremost that the promise of God has to do first not with heaven, but with earth. Not with the spiritual and the ethereal, but actually with the physical, tangible stuff of life, land. Land. Land, the stuff we fight over, the stuff we build our homes on and our cities on and our architecture on and our nations on, the stuff we put walls around and we try to protect and we will fight for, land. Land because God himself is the creator of the land and it is God's to give. The earth belongs to God and the fullness thereof. God is the creator of all things, which means he's the creator of the land we are on. It is God's to give. And God gives it to Abram. But why land? Why here? Why is this the first promise that God will take him into a land? And I suggest because if you go back to the beginning, part of what humanity lost because of sin was land. You remember in the beginning, God puts the first couple in the garden to tend and to keep it. It is paradise. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is beautiful. The Garden of Eden. And humanity sins against God, and they are sent out, of, out from the land in exile from the land. And here, God approaches Abram and says, I'm promising you, you will not forever live alienated from the land. You will not forever be a wanderer and an exile. I am coming to you, Abram, and I'm coming, and I'm going to bring you back home. I'm taking you back to the land back to your place, back where you belong, back to a world, a space in the world that is governed by my love and grace and not by sin and darkness. This is what God promises to Abram. And you know, the rest of the story of the Bible is again about the unfolding of this promise of land. You know, you, you, you move out from this place and God takes Israel out of Egypt and he takes them into the land. And then they, they, they have kings in the land, but then those kings sin against God, and then they get sent out from exile out of the land. And then the prophets come to them again and again and say, I'm going to bring you back into the land. And then you get into the New Testament, and there's an expansion of this, problem, this promise of land to not just be a renewed space in a little strip of, of the Middle East called Palestine, but God's will is for something bigger than that. His will is for the entire earth to be flooded with his glory, for all of the land through all of the plant, planet to ultimately be the inheritance of those who are his own. God has come to us to bring us out from exile and to bring us back home. So he promises Abram land. But secondly, he not only promised him land, but secondly, he promises Abram descendants. Look again what it says back in the text. He says, I will make of you a great nation. 
When you get a little bit further in Genesis in chapter 15, he takes Abram out underneath the stars. And he says, see the stars in the sky and count them if you are able. For this is as many as descendants as you will have, as many as the stars in the sky. You see, God's will was always to form a new community, a new humanity out of this broken world that would reflect his own love and his kindness in their life together and in how they treated one another. God was here forming a new nation, beginning with Abram and beginning with his physical descendants, the nation of Israel. And then you get into the New Testament and God now welcomes all people to come into this new family, this new community, this new humanity. He says, I promise you a place in my family through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a physical descendant of Abraham to get into this land. You can be a son of Abraham by faith in my son Jesus, and you can be brought into this new family, this new human community. You see, if you go back into the garden, what was fractured was human community, not just our relationship to the land, but also our relationship to one another. And the very first sin that you see coming out of the garden is a brother murdering his own brother in Cain and Abel. And here God's desire is to form a new humanity where relationships would now be healed and reconciled and would reflect his own love and grace for the world. He would form this new humanity that wouldn't just be as many as the stars in the sky, but in the midst of a dark world, they would be called to shine as light to all of the peoples of the earth, to show them this is what life looks like when you live underneath the reign of God and the rule of God, when you have relationships healed because of a right relationship with God. And so number one, God promises to Abram land. The rest of the Old Testament is about that. And then he promises them descendants. The rest of the Old Testament unfolds that narrative. And then finally, he promises them blessing. By the way, the first two images were obvious. What I was going to choose to reflect land, I was going to choose a picture of land, descendant stars in the sky. And then when my mind just thought about the blessing of God, I thought about a great meal shared around a table with friends. Amen? So uh, God says to Abram back in the text, he says, I will make your name great. And then he says this, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. The third and final aspect of God's promise is his promise not just of land and of many descendants, but of his promise of blessing. Now what does it mean for God to promise to bless our lives? Well, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who once said that uh, the blessing of God was, quote, the visible, effective, perceptible proximity of God. It is the visible, perceptible proximity of God. In other words, it is what life feels like when God, with his smile and grace and love and warmth, draws near you. And in the beginning, God's blessing was over all creation. God blessed the animals, and he blessed the birds, and he blessed the fish, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. All of creation was living underneath the smile of God, all of creation reflecting the goodness of God. And his first human creatures, 
God says, he, he blessed them. And he said, now I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Go and be diverse and many and fruitful and fill the world with an abundance of beautiful human beings, image bearers. And then he blessed them and he said, and rule over creation. Let, let the way you interact with this world reflect my own good and wise and loving rule over this world. And God says, I, 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 I bless them. But then after the story of God's blessing over creation comes the story of God's curse entering into creation. Because humanity turned their back on God and rather than living underneath the smile of God, humanity chose to live underneath the frown of God. And withdrawing from God, God withdrew his blessing from them and said, I will not bless your ways of greed and violence and arrogance and darkness in this world. I will withdraw from that. I will not cause that to flourish. And so humanity withered underneath God's curse, but God's curse is not his final word over his world. And so he comes to Abram and he says, my desire is not to curse. My desire is to bless. My desire is to be eternally and fully and completely and unreservedly for you human beings. I am for you and I'm not against you and I desire my blessing just to flood creation. And so he says to Abram, I'm blessing you. And notice why he blesses Abram. It's not not that the the promise is just for Abram. The, The promise of blessing was never intended to end with Abram. Instead, God says, I'm blessing you. I'm bringing my blessing on you, Abram, so that through you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abram. He comes to humanity with his promise. He gives to Abram and through Abram's descendants and from those descendants comes Jesus and from Jesus comes a new community where Jews and Gentiles come together in new family and to this family in Jesus all of the promises of God for land and descendants and blessing are yes and amen. Now notice how Abram responds to the promise. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. The Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod points out that to be told to go and to break ties from your kindred and your family and your land to an ancient person was unthinkable. God is calling Abram to do something that nobody was asking him to do, to cut ties with the past to cut ties with the old reality of curse and barrenness and idolatry and darkness, to cut ties with all of that past and to enter into a new journey of trust in this promise, to live towards this promise, to live by this promise. And notice Abram's response. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. There's no dialogue, there's no conversation, there is only a radical act of obedience. There is only radical decision in response to this breathtaking promise. And there is radical trust in this God. Abram obeys without objection. 
He is responsive and receptive and trusting, and he embraces the call of God. Hebrews 11 puts it like this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Notice he left what was settled and sure and secure and known and safe, and he entered into something that was unknown and unsecure and unsafe needing to trust in the promise of God, and that's what he did. Abram, when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking for a city whose foundation and builder is God. But his journey of faith not only began with radical decision and unrelenting trust in this promise, his journey of faith really was here just beginning. I love what it says a little bit later in the text. Abram goes to the land of Canaan. He gets there, and the land is not yet his to possess. It turns out that there's always somebody else in the land, someone there with their own ways of violence and greed and arrogance. They're contesting what God's will is for his land. And Abram gets there, and at that time, verse 6 says, the Canaanites already dwelled in the land. And then the Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And right there in the midst of all of the ways of idolatry and darkness and violence and greed around him, Abram builds an altar to God in the land as an act of faith for ultimately what will come in all of creation. All of creation will brought to be worshiping God in an altar, as it were, giving glory and honor to God ultimately when his kingdom would be established on earth. And the text continues, and it says, and from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Although Abram's great decision and his great embrace of the call and the promise of God was where his faith began, it was not where it ended. This was only the beginning. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead as we continue in on Abram's journey, it was a journey that had its ups and downs, its struggles and its heartaches, you know, Abram here embraces the call of God. He, 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 he holds on to the promise and trust. But as the story goes on, he's not always sure. You know, um, he, he calls, he, he desires Ishmael, not Isaac, God's one, to be the chosen son. He gets a second wife just in case the first one doesn't pull through. And he is fearful and, and he, he lies to save his own skin. And he does all kinds of things that I think all of us can at some point in our own journey of faith can relate to. But he ends his journey of faith where it began with radical trust in God in Genesis 22, which we'll get there when he offers his son Isaac. But I want to just pause as we close today and I want us just to note well where the journey of faith begins. It begins with a radical decision to trust in the promise of God. It begins with a radical decision to cut ties with the past 
and to embrace the call to go, or in the language of Jesus of Nazareth, come and follow me. Abram was called to cut the ties of country and kindred and father's house, to leave that behind and to go toward the new land that God would show him. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus calls and Peter and Andrew leave behind their nets and their boats and they go follow the call. James and John leave behind their father and they go follow the call. Matthew leaves behind his tax book his tax booth, and probably his tax books too. I don't really think they had books back then. They had scrolls. But he left in order to follow the call of God. And this is where the journey of faith always begins. With the call to leave behind old ways of being. Now for you, it may not be your father's house and the dysfunction that was there, that might be you. For you, it might not be meaning leaving behind an old career where you were wrapped up in all kinds of dicey, shady business practices like Matthew. For you, it might mean leaving behind an addictive pattern that you feel safe and secure in. It might mean leaving behind a toxic boyfriend or girlfriend. It might mean leaving behind old bitterness and hatreds that you're, you're harboring in your own heart and life. But wherever you may find yourself, God, when he comes to you and he calls us to go away from the old land and to enter into a new space, a new reality, a new promise. And it always requires a radical commitment a commitment that arises out of trust in the promise of God, that God will be faithful to provide for us in all of the ways in which the past we felt had provided for us, even though it was so dysfunctional. Now, again, it looks different for everyone, but all of us at some moment in time in our life are called to make a decision of faith. And it's oftentimes not just once. Oftentimes, there are other decisions that we have to make, acts of faith where God is calling us to leave something behind and to trust him and to walk in a path ahead. I can remember back when I was uh, still living in Long Beach about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago now. I remember one morning I was reading my Bible and I read this very passage where God called Abraham to leave family and kindred and land, what was safe and known, and to step in to the unknown, trusting only in God. And a little bit later that day, I received an email from a church that was in a land that I had never been to and had no interest in going to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was being invited to consider going to this place. And I remember, you know, after a long process of discernment, when Alicia and I and the girls decided we would step into that, I remember it was fearful because we were leaving what was safe and known what we liked, and we had to step into that which was unknown, trusting in God to provide. And that is always how the journey of faith goes, and that is how faith grows. It is when we take steps by faith, stepping out of that which is known and stepping into the unknown. And again, it, it will look different for different 
people. For some of you, it might mean stepping out in vulnerability, out of the darkness of your shame and guilt of your addictions because you trust in God's promise that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It might mean stepping out in vulnerability and risk and giving a large sum of money away because you're trusting that there is no one, the promise of Jesus, there is no one who has left father or mother or homes or lands for the sake of the kingdom of God that shall not receive a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come eternal life. It means in vulnerability and risk, stepping away from that dysfunctional, toxic boyfriend or girlfriend that you're like, this is not right, and trusting that God will be what your heart most needs. He will be present for you eternally and unreservedly for you and not against you, even there. But listen, if you are here and you are investigating Christianity and you have been in a place and you're like, look, I've been, I've been watching this for a long time. Maybe I've been here for a few months. Maybe you've been here for years and quite frankly, you're a religious person, but there has been no act of radical commitment and trust where you entrusted yourself into the promise of God. Listen, the call upon our lives today is to release and relinquish and entrust ourselves to God. Listen, you have to choose how you're going to live. And, and you have to, at some point, make commitments and decisions in your life. And it is so rare that you will ever have the opportunity to have a 100% commitment that is based on 100% certitude. Has anybody here ever... You know, it, 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 it's just a fact that the most important decisions you will ever make in life the ones that demand 100% commitment, the decision, for example, to get married or maybe to have children or to get involved in a career change or in this case to entrust your life to Jesus, the most important decisions you will ever make in life, you will never have 100% certitude on, will you? In fact, there's almost nothing that we in this life can have 100% certitude on. But we have to decide how we're gonna live today. We have to make a decision today how we're going to live. You know, the plane is going down, you know. We all have a finite existence, and your life is short. And, you know, the very public, the very definitive way that Jesus gave to us to make that decision, to go public with that decision, where we say goodbye to the past and we enter into a new life, is in the act of baptism, and listen, in a few weeks, we are going to have baptisms here in this worship service. And maybe you are here and you felt called by Jesus to be his disciple. You feel like Jesus is, is calling me to leave something behind and to enter into this new life with him. Baptism is the place where you get plunged underneath water and it symbolizes a saying goodbye to an old life, to the old ways of being, and you're raised up out of the waters of baptism, which reflects our union with Christ, being raised into this new life with Christ. And listen, here is the good news. You can trust God with your life. You can trust God with your decisions. You can trust God with your future. You can trust God with all of that. And you can trust God because 2,000 years ago, just as God broke into Abraham's life in his gracious, sovereign freedom, so God broke into our world. 
But unlike Abram, where he came with a word of promise 2,000 years ago, God's promise took on flesh and blood in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. In Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. And he hasn't just called us to leave home and family and father's house. Jesus himself left the eternal home and his father's house, the eternal son, entered into our world so that he might give himself fully and unreservedly for us. He went into exile so that he can bring all of the exiles back home. He entered into the very curse, bearing it in his own self, in his life, and his death on the cross, so that you and I can be brought in as recipients of God's blessing. You can trust this God. You can trust this God. You know, at this time, I want to invite our band to come up, and we're going to close out our service by sharing together in the Lord's Supper And it is in this practice where we take these physical, tangible elements that we are reminded, really, it's an act where God is preaching to us. He is proclaiming to us in this action of partaking in the bread and the cup. He is proclaiming to us, you can trust me. My promise is broken into the world. And yes, you are still on a journey. Life is still confusing. There are struggles. But I have, I have determined to take us home. And one day, my death and resurrection will break out in all of creation when I return physically and bodily and all things will be made new and the whole earth will be flooded with the presence and the love of God and God's people will be finally restored and made new and we will live underneath the blessing of God fully and completely. And so we can trust this God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we prepare to come to the table now, that you would awaken our hearts afresh today to your grace and mercy, to your goodness, to the fact that you are worthy of our deepest trust. And God, for all of those here today who need to make a decision, I pray, God, that you would lead them to that place of surrender, of letting go of a past and allow them to open up their hands and receive this promise and orient their lives around the promise of your grace and love in Jesus. And I pray, God, for all of us who in little decisions in our life are in that place, would you refresh our hearts with your grace even as we share together at the table? And would you enable our deeper trust in you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.